Unlike modern presidents, Theodore Roosevelt does not yet have a presidential library. Instead, his personal and presidential papers are scattered in libraries and other sites all across the United States. If only there was an institution whose mission was to gather together and digitize copies of all Roosevelt-related items to make his legacy more readily accessible to scholars and schoolchildren, enthusiasts, and interested citizens. We are fortunate there is such an institution, and that is the mission of the Theodore Roosevelt Center at Dickinson State University. And today we'll be joined by the director of the TR Center, Dr. Chris O'Brien. Hello and welcome to the Talk About Teddy podcast, our weekly conversations exploring the world of Theodore Roosevelt. I'm your host, Kurt Skinner, and I'm joined as ever by my good pal and co-host, Larry Marple. Hello, Kurt. We have another bully show today. We're joined today by Dr. Chris O'Brien. He's the director of the Theodore Roosevelt Center at Dickinson State University. Dr. O'Brien spent nearly 30 years as a college professor specializing in modern U.S. history. At the University of Maine, he chaired the history department and the division of social sciences, and he even served as president of the faculty. He has authored several articles and book chapters on Cold War American culture and has conducted grant-supported research at the Hoover, Truman, Eisenhower, and even Kennedy Presidential Libraries. In 2011, he was named a Linus Pauling Fellow at Oregon State University. For more than a decade, he served on the Maine Historical Records Advisory Board, which seeks to preserve and catalog and digitize state and local history. Dr. O'Brien began as director of the Theodore Roosevelt Center in July of 2022. He's helped transition the operation to a new and expanded office complex, launched a gallery space and a research library, has added additional staff, and began a fundraising campaign, among other initiatives. Dr. Chris O'Brien, welcome to the Talk About Teddy podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to see you, Kurt and Larry. Chris, you've written and researched extensively in modern U.S. history, particularly focusing on America during the Cold War. So could you tell us how your interest in Theodore Roosevelt developed and then led you to be the director of the Theodore Roosevelt Center? So... It's an excellent question with a strange answer. So I, I spent about 30 years as a college professor, uh, and I t- taught courses on both presidency and on foreign policy. And that kind of takes you to Roosevelt. Those two things in two really important ways. He helped reshape the presidency, and he certainly helped reshape American foreign policy. So there's a third answer to this that I'll get to in just a, a moment, which is the better answer on how I ended up in the job. But the... The first introduction I had to Roosevelt was, was years ago when I started teaching courses about foreign policy, uh, international relations, uh, history professor, and arrived in Maine, I developed a class called Undeclared Wars. And that's just all those wars that we didn't get around to, you know, going through Congress and doing all <laughs> those steps to do. Um, so I developed a little start of the semester thing where I'd say to my students, just pick a country in Central America. And that would be the one that we would follow. How many times did we invade? How many times did we drop troops on the ground? And over and over and over again. And and it worked out pretty well because they tended to be ones that the students knew. So Panama, for instance, Mm. which will take you to Theodore Roosevelt without a whole lot of problem. Yeah, that whole Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and the course picked up end of the Spanish-American War, ran through the present. Um, but Roosevelt had troops in country in various places more than 300 times. Wow. wow. Almost none of those went through any sort of congressional approval. And many of them were things like some missionary gets in trouble somewhere and we drop a couple of Marines on shore and they march mm -hmm. in with a gun and nobody shoots and they bring somebody back out. But mm -hmm. it was places that I had not anticipated. We dropped some Marines in Abyssinia, modern Ethiopia, under Theodore Roosevelt's wow. administration. I had not thought they could have picked a country in East Africa, for instance. <laughs> we could have followed that one out. But So he's always been a bit of a fascination. And then in the course on the presidency, he is a transformative figure in how the presidency works. Yeah. Uh, there are only a handful of them who really are. And he follows a series of presidents who are not transformative. Let's go with that. <laughs> uh, so he, he really reshaped executive power and the idea about the relationship between the president and the public. So always been there, always been part of my, my working life. And, and I'm actually a Cold War historian. And so if you even think about the relationship between the United States, Japan, and Russia, Mm -hmm. uh, and Roosevelt's role there, he's had an influence on what I, what I wrote and what I did, what I taught forever. Yeah. But the actual answer to how I ended up in Dickinson is, is even more fun. My wife and I, Janie and I, like to go to national parks. And we had never been to North Dakota. And the other part of this is when we're on the road, when we're taking big trips, we buy each other little gifts. And so we come through North Dakota and we go to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, which we love. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. And we get back home. And for Christmas, this is when we give each other these gifts from the road, she had a postcard from the Theodore Roosevelt National Park, which she purchased when we stopped in Dickinson. It's mm -hmm. framed on my mantle right now. It's here at home <laughs> no. right now. And a few weeks later, the job popped up. And I thought, how strange is that? Wow. <laughs> so, Providential, huh? Yeah. 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 So huh. uh, that's, what, that's what took me there, both the man and the opportunity, I suppose, mm. and, and a bit of a very strange coincidence. <laughs> well, yeah, I would say, though, you're teaching the American presidency and, and even later 20th century history. It's really interesting how T.R.'s fingers are all over the history of the 20th century. So. Yeah. Yeah, I may have prepared you better than you thought for this job. It certainly did. It certainly did. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of our listeners are fairly familiar with particular aspects of Roosevelt's life and career, but may not be familiar with all that's going on there at Dickinson State in North Dakota. So I was wondering if you might give us a little bit of background and maybe some of the ongoing mission of the Theodore Roosevelt Center. We are attempting to make the first complete digital presidency for an analog president. So Barack Obama's presidential library, for instance, is entirely of the digital era. So a very different thing than going back to Theodore Roosevelt's life and picking up 150 to 200,000 letters making sense of the creating what's called metadata tags, I think of them as, just little search guidelines or search words that, that link together the documents. Um, 30 or 40 books. We just posted 
a growing list of his writings that appeared in the Outlook and Kansas City Star, um, Ladies Home Journal and others. Um, we had a student intern who worked on that project to try and find every open source version of those things that we can. It's a couple of hundred items and continues to grow as people send things to us. The Theodore Roosevelt Center actually started the better part of 15 years ago in its current guise. And it had grown out of an idea that actually came up originally in 1958. In 1958, there was a president of the university who said, we need to do something to honor Theodore Roosevelt in North Dakota, and invited in a number of folks, including Senator John Kennedy, who arrived at Dickinson and gave a speech. So that is the first of the Theodore Roosevelt Symposia. And they happened somewhat irregularly <laughs> until about 15 years ago, yeah. uh, 18 years ago, I suppose, uh, when it became tied to the idea of building the Theodore Roosevelt Center and building a presidential library at Dickinson State. That part of it has since moved down the road to Medora, but that helped drive the initial funding that, that made the Theodore Roosevelt Center more than an occasional idea. Jenkinson was involved, Lillian Crook was involved, uh, and they tell me that they dreamed up the whole thing on the back of a napkin over a cup of coffee at the local library. <laughs> um, As all great endeavors get started. Yes, yeah. yeah. And then Sharon Kilzer, who was working at the university at the time, was brought in as the program manager. And she really built what we have. So we're building on what Sharon built and designed and Clay and Lillian and others dreamed up. Is this 24-7, open, accessible, uh, hopefully easily searchable version of Theodore Roosevelt where you can move from link to link to link and build the complete picture of the man designed for researchers, and I don't care if they're third graders or college students or somebody working on their dissertation in Australia who we hear from on a regular basis. Hmm. Um, it's a worldwide approach to making Roosevelt available, uh, and all of Roosevelt, the complications that are the man, are in yep. there, right? Mm -hmm. We don't shy mm -hmm. away from those. Yeah. One of the things that I didn't know, and it's accessible to researchers if you ask us, is that we have not linked out publicly, but we keep a record of every single name that we come across. Wow. And every letter and everything, and we try to find those people. There's some easy ones. I mean, there's a Henry Cabot Lodge. I can find him. <laughs> that was yeah. But there, there are also a lot of John Smiths who write, who write to Theodore Roosevelt. And... We do our very best to track down who they were and where they lived and, and when they died and all those good things. Uh, and that list now is several hundred, maybe as many as 900 mm. people that we've got on there. In addition, we're cataloging collections from a variety of places and trying to bring them into a single format of searchability. So the papers, Roosevelt's papers, as you know, are scattered all over. And the deeper we go into this, the more scattered we find they are. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. the, we have the Library of Congress collection, Harvard. There's a collection at Yale that we partially have. The National Park Service has a, a number of things. So in all, I think we have, oh, maybe 30 different collections that we have mostly completely worked our way through. 
I say this by way of saying there are more coming, <laughs> and we haven't worked through those yet, <laughs> including a new arrival, as you both know. Uh, but we also do an outreach effort to anybody we find who might have Roosevelt-related items. Um, mm-hmm. Recently, yeah. Dr. William Hansard is our outreach coordinator. He's a PhD in, in Gilded Age history, and he went to the University of Texas at Arlington for his doctoral work, and they have a newspaper collection. And within that newspaper collection, they have already identified Theodore Roosevelt things. Wow. And so we're working with them on getting those newspaper articles uh, indexed in a way that makes sense to them and makes sense within our collection. So those things are available as well. Yeah, that's well, it's just such a democratic nature of yeah. making all these isolated document sets available to you know to the, the public. I, I couldn't help but thinking TR would think that this was – I think he would see this in terms of preserving our nation's intellectual heritage, perhaps, yeah. as, a, as a birthright for all, all American citizens. But but as you said, even beyond America's borders, this is now searchable for people around the planet. So that's that's amazing. Right. It's a big project. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. This, is, this is a big one and, and bigger than I think anybody involved ever imagined. Mm-hmm. And it grows. So... One of the questions that I faced frequently is, when are you going to be done? <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the better question is, when am I going to retire? Because <laughs> that will be my end date. It's, the project's going to roll on well beyond that moment. This is job security for how many center directors? Oh, I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, you've mentioned the breadth of how much there is. And I was curious what life is like as the Theodore Roosevelt Center director? What does your life look like? So my life's a number of things. We moved, as you may know, into a new building, into a new space about it, about the time I arrived, about a year and a half ago. Uh, and that space includes a number of things that weren't available before for the first 14 years of the existence of the place. It was in the basement of the university library. It was a good space and and a good place to be and a little exhibit area upstairs. But we since have moved into a remodeled university building that has a gallery and a research library and genuine archival space with temperature and humidity control. And we are growing into our new space. So... Part of the life of the director is managing that transition from being crammed into the basement of a library into yeah. how, do, how do we use this space. And so the day-to-day operation of this, I'd love to tell you, is, is it's different from day-to-day. I spend an awful lot of time with budgets. I'm a director, so there's that. I, I spend a lot of time talking to donors and potential donors about ways that we might be able to grow into that space even better, right? About ways that we might be able to think about uh, how do we take advantage of of what we have now. Uh, I work closely with our partner organizations, the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library, Harvard, the Library of Congress. We have regular calls from CNN and others looking for information about Theodore Roosevelt. I fortunately have a wonderful staff who can answer almost all of that stuff in no time at all, right? If you've worked with them, you know this. The the other piece that, that I do right now, which is a major part of this, is is the world of technology is changing. Mm-hmm. And so I spend an awful lot of time looking at how will technological changes 
change the way that we do what we do. So I'll give you a really easy example of where we haven't made the move yet, but it's probably coming. So if you think about scanning a document that's typewritten, computers are now really good about doing optical character recognition, OCR, and turning mm -hmm. that into a digital file. So we can scan things pretty quickly and have it digitally available with some enormous amount of scrutiny. <laughs> so a good, yeah. clean document comes across as good, clean text. Uh, a document that where the photograph was on microfilm from 80 or 90 years ago or moved to microfilm 80 or 90 years ago means that we don't quite get there. But the place that that the growth opportunity is and the place where we're looking into now is handwriting recognition. And mm. wow. this is the most complicated thing just because people write in such different hands. So we're working with tech firms to try and figure out, can we pilot a few of these through? Can we get uh, a program that will recognize some handwriting? The other problem with this, of course, and it's a Theodore Roosevelt problem, is by the time he's in the White House, much of what we have is typewritten but then he writes notes on it. <laughs> and if you've seen this, and I invite anybody to go and just pull up some of his notes for speeches through our digital library. When I say I, he writes notes, I mean he writes notes on whatever available white space there is on the paper. And when he <laughs> yeah. runs out of white space on the paper, he flips it over and writes on the backside, maybe on the envelope. And he might throw another piece of paper in there too. Yeah. And even if you can read handwriting that's all in a straight line in a row, Reading Theodore Roosevelt's handwriting in the way he wrote it <laughs> is a whole lot of computing horsepower. Let's go with that. A human brain can do it. You can turn a piece of paper, right? You can, you can yeah. do that pretty easily. And he's got a pretty neat hand. So he does actually. I mean, I, I think Larry and I probably we have developed an ability to yeah. decipher most of Roosevelt's writing. But then you look at that correspondence received by Roosevelt and. And so it may be so ornate that it's almost unreadable to the yeah. modern eye. Right. But. Well, and there there are people who whose handwriting changes over time. So I'm yeah. thinking of Bammy, his sister. Oh yeah. Uh, and her handwriting is never easy to read. No. And as she ages, grows more mm. difficult. Let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> but they also, as brothers and sisters do, they shorthand each other. Oh, yeah. They know what they're talking about. And so you might get a partial name. And so sorting through that. So it's an interesting uh, task. We're not there. <laughs> Intelligence isn't there. But we have partners who we're working with about the, the start of conversations about how we might get to something like that. Wow. Uh, and that, for us, is has potential that is enormous so yeah, I'll tell you that's exciting actually. Well, that's... and the other advantage of being able to do this with computers is we're not bound by English mm, so we might uh -huh. be able to bring the Al Jazeera's conference this conference that's set up as your listeners know to deal with the issues in Morocco which is held in Spain, and so the language is there, Spanish, Arabic, French, German. Everybody has documents related to that. And we have some of those things, and some of the correspondences come in, and occasionally it's translated. And between the people who I have working for us, 
we can probably get through some of that. <laughs> but the idea of being able to get through all of that, still not there. We're not there. Handwriting recognition right now is better at forms where a signature goes in the same place, mm-hmm. where the date goes in the same place. But we're hopeful. We're hopeful. So I'm thinking, well, while artificial intelligence is at it, there's the shorthand that all of... Roosevelt secretaries and personal assistants used for the return correspondence. Yeah. Right. We have up in our gallery right now, Roosevelt is reader and writer. And this is an exhibit that we did ourselves, right? It's entirely the staff did it. And there is just one page of the shorthand (laughs) that says, we don't know what this says to you. (laughs) And we're hopeful somebody will walk in and be able to read it for us. And, and turn it into some sort of recognizable text. Mm. Uh, it's not Pittman, which my grandmother did. Uh, there were at least a dozen different shorthand writing styles, most of oh. which faded away. No idea. Yeah, well, no, I'll make it worse. It's not even consistent. Oh, no. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> seems to be two or maybe three different ones. He used one for a while which I think grew more and more Theodore Roosevelt and less and less training. Mm-hmm. Um, but his secretaries would often use different styles. Oh. So we have one that nobody's cracked for us yet. We didn't do it, but somebody put it out on Reddit a while ago. And if you're going to find folks who can crack things, Reddit's not a bad place to go mm-hmm. to find cryptographers, right? And we don't have it yet, but you know, somebody should walk in the door and tell me what that thing says. Um, so we're, we're putting a call out to all ninety-five-year-old secretaries out there, right, former secretaries yeah. who, right, right, right. <laughs> or those who just like to study shorthand. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had made reference to some of the other collections that, beyond just the standards of Library of Congress and, and Harvard, that I see that there there are smaller and lesser-known collections that, that you're cataloging. Do you have any sense of that size and scope of that known Roosevelt document universe out there, and, and what are some of these other smaller collections that you keep coming across? Well, so we have a variety of collections that we have completely gone through and added metadata to that vary in size. So we've got a collection from the Buffalo Bill of the West. It has a couple of hundred things in it. We've gone through that completely. Many of these collections are things that come from other organizations. So we get almost everything arrives to us digital. We try not to do that work ourselves. It's incredibly labor intensive. And so if folks have collections, we've got guidelines for how they might come to us. Uh, But... Of the probably 30 collections, um, we are above 95% complete with everything but the Library of Congress in terms of running it through our process and adding metadata. So that doesn't mean that everything's available. Uh, We have some copyright issues. So it becomes available as copyright expires. So mm-hmm. there are some of these things that, that are still within copyright range, which is uh, varies. Let's go with 75 years for most things, but varies. So some of the things that arrive to us have their own restrictions on them. So we have collections where we have actually cataloged them, but until the, the donor approves, 
we can't publish everything to our website. Um, wow. We can often make those available to researchers. We have a research exception to almost everything. So if folks run into things and they say, is there more on that? There often is. We try to publish everything, and we do publish everything that we can publish, right? Everything goes up on the web the minute that, that we get it done, so long as we've cleared the restrictions. Um, we are now working our way through the, the presidency, and this is the biggest collection. This is the Library of Congress collection. And they are, in many ways, the granddaddy of it all, right? They kind of start <laughs> the whole thing. Uh, and so what we're doing, different than what they do, uh, so most archives and research libraries that I've gone to as a historian uh, catalog things by boxes and folders. So I'll give you an easy one. I was at the Kennedy Library almost two years ago now, I suppose. And they have a series of boxes marked uh, telegrams. That's it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not overly helpful yeah, right, no. right and so when people like me come in and are looking for specific days specific things they can then add to their cataloging the library of congress work like that as well which is they they set up the big guidelines and then as more and more comes in they get more and more depth what we do is item level everything in every folder we look at wow. and catalog every single one of them so Library of Congress has had these available. They're all publicly available. The Library of Congress the collections are publicly available. We're working through to add greater search function so a researcher can move between documents <clears throat> more readily than you can just using the Library of Congress alone. And that's a partnership with the Library of Congress where we're in regular communication with them about where they would like us to go next. <laughs> what is it that would be most useful for you guys? And so... That's a big one. That's the, as you might imagine, that's the bulk of the papers for Theodore Roosevelt is, is during the presidency. It's also one where, as I mentioned before, it's mostly typewritten. So that allows us to move through it. It allows us, we're rebuilding a volunteer program once our new website goes operational later this year. So we'll, we'll be taking advantage of hopefully some of your listeners to, to help us move through some of those documents more quickly. There's a little bit of a training learning curve on how to do this. But fortunately, we've been training people through internship programs and other ways for a long time, so, so we can help people get up to speed pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the collection has a lot of typewritten documents. Are there any three-dimensional items in the collection so, that have been digitized, uh, I mean? Right. We do have a variety of things that are in collections or so. Not three-dimensional, but two, but in a yeah. different form. We've got the Sherman Grinberg collection, which is film strips, Theodore Roosevelt oh. speaking. There's more than 100 of them, uh, some which overlap with the Library of Congress collections, but most of these came from newsreel agencies. So they're often from collections that were not part of the Library of Congress collection. There's 125, some of them I think is the right number, that are up available. You can now go look in the Sherman Greenbrook collection and see Theodore Roosevelt speaking in front of crowds in various places. Oh. There's a variety of things that people have either provided us with images or have gifted us with, with some things, postcards and, and mm -hmm. a variety of things. We don't really have the space to collect much, and we're not a collecting institution, right? But the generosity of people over the years has meant that, that we do have some things that have arrived 
we have a truly ridiculous number of teddy bears. Please. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> the, uh, Got a whole storeroom of those things, oh, huh? Oh, why yeah, do you know. we have teddy bears? Yeah. And often really important to the people who sent them to us. So, so I appreciate yeah. that. But maybe not of the greatest historical value, but of great sentimental yeah. value. Yeah. Uh, but we do try to put things up as quickly as we possibly can. There's campaign buttons and things like that that you can go see images of uh, that are held by partner organizations. We have a few of those things ourselves, but not very many. That the mission is to make it accessible, all of this anywhere and everywhere, and the yeah. physical items don't do that very easily. Yeah. I know when my wife and I visited with you this summer, mm-hmm. you had a handkerchief with a one of the calling cards that had been donated. And would you like to tell about that one? That's one I was thinking of about with the 3D items. Well, it is fortunate that your wife, who I'm sure your listeners know, plays Edith in Medora, yeah. uh, was able to, to come in and help us sort out some of the provenance on this handkerchief. Uh, it arrived an email just saying, my grandmother has this. It has a calling card um, from Edith Roosevelt, and I don't know what to do with it, and my family doesn't want it. Do you want it? And we get a number of things that are Roosevelt-ish. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the real deal. And yeah. we didn't know a whole lot about the handkerchief story which I'll leave to someone more versed than me to tell, but, but Edith did donate handkerchiefs to charity organizations around the country. Yeah. And apparently in early ones, she would do some of the embroidery herself. But your wife informed us that this one looked a bit more store-bought, but by the time <laughs> she was the first lady, there were so many requests yeah. that she couldn't keep up with the requests. So it actually came from the post-presidency period. But it was a fantastic thing. We're in the process of trying to find somebody who can tell us how to best mount something of that age and how to display it in the best possible way. But it now has a bit of a story to go with it. But when you go home, (laughs) yeah, say thanks again. (laughs) Are there any gems that stick out in the collection for you, Dr. O'Brien? There's a handful of them. And I'll tell you that the... The thing that comes first to mind is a product of moving into the new building, uh, into the new space. We have a, let's go with recreation of Roosevelt's library at Sagamore Hill. And so it's a, it's a smaller version, and we don't have an animal head on every surface. We don't have taxidermy <laughs> everywhere you turn. We've substituted in teddy bears. <laughs> but... One of the things that happened when we moved in is that we now have a place to put collections of Roosevelt's works. Mm. And so we've received on loan, a local person has collected signed editions of Roosevelt's books. Wow. And so, and I'm a book person, as you might imagine. So I Mm -hmm. walk into that library and I can find Theodore Roosevelt's signature on book after book. It's a pretty amazing thing. And he did sign a lot of books, right? He, he made his living <laughs> he as an author as much as anything. He signed a lot of books. So some of them are rare, some of them less rare. But it's amazing just to be able to walk in and see them. In the strange things that get gathered in the basement that we weren't even aware of everything that was there. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite little versions of what it means when you move 
and if you've moved house, you know this, <clears throat> is that you find things that you thought you knew where they were, and they turn up later. So one of the things that popped up was an item that was the the notes on where to locate this particular little campaign pin was, it's by the bejeweled purse. No. <laughs> so we eventually found it and, it and it was there was a little purse that looked like a cowboy boot but but wow. yeah some of some of the things it's just it's fun to find so among my favorites there's a bejeweled purse but this <laughs> i had no real relationship to roosevelt that i could tell but but it's how we find things around my shop <laughs> <laughs> a bit of Indiana Jones. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, as I've looked through just the digitized stuff, I, I have a hard time narrowing it down. But I spent some time in the National World War One Museum in Kansas City, right. and they had there on display a letter that T.R. had sent out during the First World War where he's trying to raise his own division prior to all the American forces going over. And uh, in the end, of course, uh, as most of our listeners will know, Woodrow Wilson shot him down and didn't allow that to go forward. And so Roosevelt sent out these letters informing those who have volunteered for, for service. Uh, thank you for being willing to step up, but uh, you know, it doesn't look like yeah. we're going to be, <laughs> be able to go. And So they have this typewritten letter uh, that was received by somebody from Roosevelt. Then you go online to the Theodore Roosevelt Center and you can find handwritten version right. of that letter that he wrote before it got typed up and yeah. sent out to 15,000 men who wanted to join him in the First World War. It's that kind of cool stuff, you know, from a, my own perspective of being particularly interested in, in the, the Rough Riders. You've, from right. the Harvard collection as well, you've got Roosevelt's personal little pocket diary that he kept during the campaign in Cuba and that's available for anybody to go look at and so that's it's you know it's in the digital form it's from some of these other well-known collections but still I, I just think I just marvel at our ability to just see and access that kind of stuff that uh, you know just wasn't that long ago that this was yeah. utterly off limits to most Americans right right the I spent a significant chunk of my life in, in libraries and archives as a researcher. The amount of time that I could have potentially spent writing rather than driving is, yeah. is enormous, right? It's, it's yeah. the, and that's the goal. That's the goal is, is you should still go see stuff if you can. You should still go see the diary. You should still, if, if that's possible for you, that those, that's great. But we do have it. Right, you can you can see it anytime you want. Yeah. You pull it right up, and yeah, it is yeah. an exact. It's a digitized photo mm -hmm. of every page. Chris, you'd given some answer to this earlier, I guess, but I was just really curious what that coordination process looks like with some other organization that you you come to know that that there is some small little library or organization out there in America that holds. A handful of of Roosevelt documents. What does that, um, what does that coordination and collection process look like between the Theodore Roosevelt Center and that little institution? Right. So we have standards that we use to determine the quality of images, hmm. uh, and so 
we come across the collection in one way or another, it's often um, that I'm down in the weeds looking for something, and I'm and I'm, <laughs> I go out and I, I who has this and what parts are we missing, and I'll run across it somewhere. So we've got thirty some organizations that we already know. There's communication among our archivists and other archivists. There's communications, the historians among us, with others about, does anybody know where this might be? And we can find additional things. And often what we find is not what we were looking for, but we find collections other than that. Uh, And I will reach out to folks and say, we would like to add your collection to ours. The central repository of how do you find things, Theodore Roosevelt, is you you start with us and you head out, right? You you head Mm -hmm. out to those collections. But... Um, for places that are large enough for the Library of Congress or Harvard or a place like that, they have teams in place in order to be able to handle requests like that. For smaller places, they may not be ready to do that. So yeah. I'll give you an easy example, and then I'll tell you my, my horror story that does not have to do with Theodore Roosevelt. Um, but I've actually been doing this part of the job for a very long time, trying to locate documents and preserve them, uh, because here in Maine I served on Historic Records Preservation Committee for a decade. And so we tried to preserve records around the state that were just scattered in the same sort of way, which makes this part of the job make sense to me. So I will reach out and say we would like to add this, and often their immediate answer is yes. And I say, here's what we need. (laughs) And... We need images of this quality, so they'll show up on the web, and they can be enlarged or shrunk, and they'll work on mobile devices. And and for many folks that work small collections, um, they're volunteers. Mm-hmm. So we might run into a wall at that moment, or if there's a big copy center office supply store nearby, they can copy it at the ways that we need, right? So if there's a Office Depot, Staples, one of those types of places nearby. We can send them our requirements and folks can take their stuff there and then we can just pull it in immediately. We then go through our process of of cataloging and and making sense of it and connecting it to other collections. Um, The difficulty on all of these things is if we don't do them, much of this paper is more than 100 years old. So putting it in a format where it can be preserved. And paper is amazing. It lasts for a very long time if it's cared for. So I got into this in part because I served on that committee, the Historic Records Preservation. And there was a draft riot in Kingfield, Maine during the Civil War. And the records from the Kingfield Historical Society are in a man's basement. Oh, all of the paper records. So for the better part of 20 years, I've been trying to convince this fella that probably we should digitize those and make them available. But he's worried about that. It's paper. It's fragile. And he's got genuine concerns. So running our way down through these is finding willing partners who, who can do this. It's often happenstance. It's occasionally somebody will drop in and say, did you know about this? I saw this in, in this collection. Were you aware of it? And then either I or, or William Hansard will reach out. Um, occasionally, Eric Johnson or Kelly Highland, who are archivists in the shop. We've got online folks as well. Gemma Coons works for us remotely. But one of us will reach out and ask if they're interested in having it join 
our digital collection. And I don't know, we've got six or seven of those out right now, waiting for answers on the other end that we'll see what happens. We are asking quite a bit of people if they say yes. So uh, I understand some hesitation, but in order to make it readily available, we do kind of have to say, it's got to be this good a picture. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the reality of it is that they get to share their collection in a way that, that you can't just do on a small historic association that's open a few days a week in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, for some folks, that's a very good thing. For others, I understand when they say, this is a draw for us, and we oh. don't want to share it everywhere, right? We, we want people to come to us. That's a perfectly legitimate answer. That, that yeah. works, too. That's the, we have a record of what it is and where it is, and, and maybe someday somebody will say, okay, now's the time. But, but for smaller places, they often will answer, we thought so, but, but we might not be ready to share. And, and yet it is perishable, and if yeah. it's not digitized, then that's lost forever. And they've lost the opportunity to, for future generations to, to gain from that artifact. Right. I try to be gentle, but I do try to nudge in that direction. <laughs> Calls for a bit of diplomacy, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. We'll see how good we are. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. So what are the steps once you receive a digital item to get that thing uh, processed, cataloged, and, uh, and out there as a usable product for researchers? So it's multiple steps. So we... Assuming that we already have it digitally, uh, we have a enormous database hiding on the back end of everything here. Our digital library is an enormous database um, that has millions of points of data in it. Um, 350,000 some individual items and growing. Each of them has metadata tags that identify things like who is the author and for a letter, who's the recipient, what's the date, where is it sent from, where is it going to, those sorts of things, those basic things that are pretty easy for a business form letter but take a bit longer for a handwritten letter, right? Sorting through and finding that information. Uh, They then write a brief description of the content of every item, so two, three, four sentences that lays out what it is, who it's to, Uh, what it's about for government documents. It often contains more information than letters do because of the nature of what's in those documents. Mm -hmm. So the information that goes in about the Spanish-American War could include anything related to the Spanish-American War, right? There may be a metadata tag that includes Santiago, for instance, or may include Kettle Hill. And those things are all because we have those those keywords linked to others within the database, having every one of those keywords in that comes out of that document allows us to link them across the entire database. So you can use the entire digital library, go in, type in Kettle Hill, and find what we have. So some items, as you might imagine, are a very short paragraph or so, but many of them are tens or hundreds of pages. So that involves reading tens or hundreds of pages, sometimes in handwriting. So here's one of the other gems for me, and I may have mentioned this to Larry last last summer. At least three people that we know of write to Theodore Roosevelt to tell them that they are Jesus. 
that they are the second coming. <laughs> those are just fun. That. Yeah, yeah. Those are just fun. Yeah. I would have um, remembered that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, um, I'm going to have to look up how he replied. Right, right, right. Oh, good. So, yeah. What do you do with a letter like that? How do you catalog <laughs> something like that? So the other part of what the archivists do is they talk to each other a lot about how do we deal with things like this, right? How do we make sense of this? How do we be respectful of yeah. everyone involved? And it requires an historian. I mean, the archivist has to be a lot of things, right? But being able to put everything yeah. into historical context you have is it. important. It. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so... Huh. This is all done. It goes through a review process. It passes through multiple hands, so we make sure that we've got everything correct down to the punctuation, right? And if it's available, we then publish it out to the web. They, they publish about once a week. Um, yeah. And so during the summer, we'll have a team of interns who are all Master's in Library Information Science students scattered around the country, six or eight of them most summers. And so... During the summers, you will see just these huge dumps <laughs> because we have wow. so many more people working during that time where we're, we're publishing it, just this really big clip. But Kelly, who I mentioned earlier, Kelly Highland, had a letter that was 78 pages long. That's, yes. that's, that's going to be more than today's work. Right? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, so... Hope she doesn't get paid by the document. You know, she's asked. <laughs> or get paid like TR did in Brazil, a dollar a word. Dollar a word, yeah. No, no, no. We're, we're not doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things the Theodore Roosevelt Center is well known for is the symposia that you have. We watch them frequently. Could you tell us about some of the past themes? And we're curious if the 2024 theme has been chosen. So, yes to both of those. We're headed into our 19th annual, but maybe the 23rd or 24th or 25th, depending on how you want to count the ones that come before that. This year, 2024, will be our 19th annual. And it's conservation and sustainability is the theme coming up in early September this year. Uh because we're at Dickinson State University, lovely place on the hill, our timing of symposium moves around a little bit. It's always in the fall because North Dakota is beautiful in the fall. Mm -hmm. uh, and for your listeners, we can't compete with a football schedule. So we have to schedule when there's not a home game because there's only so many hotel rooms in Dickinson, North Dakota. So, so it slides a little bit based on that. So early September this year, we'll, we'll be putting out a notice. We're in the process of just beginning to contact uh, folks for this fall. They've looked at Roosevelt in a number of ways over time, Roosevelt and sport. So during Theodore Roosevelt's administration, there's this book about Roosevelt Save Football. Um, he probably didn't, but but you know he was there. He was he was he was he was in on the conversation. So let's give him some credit. The but the professionalization of sport in the way that we think about it now is happening during his lifetime, and he's often involved in those things. So we had uh, Brian Swanson, who wrote the book about Theodore Roosevelt and sport, came up and was part of the symposium that year, and we had folks who looked at issues, both from Roosevelt and using Roosevelt as a lens on the era. So we've looked at Roosevelt in the past in the context of the national parks. So there'll be some overlap this time as well in conservation and sustainability with the national parks. 
uh, we've had Roosevelt as political leader. What's it mean to be president, right? Mm -hmm. How do you understand the presidency and, and how transformative is he? So every year when we finish the symposium, when we're done with sustainability and conservation, we, we ask people to throw ideas at us. What will we be doing? I like to think, because I am a historian, I like to think of Roosevelt as a way of understanding more than just Roosevelt. Roosevelt mm -hmm. is a way into his time period. So there was one on Roosevelt and his family. So I mentioned the presidency class that I taught for all those years. And I will tell you, presidential families are often messy. Mm-hmm. They're all men so far, uh, who often have difficult relationships with their children. So it's great to see Alice, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great fun to read about Alice. Many of the children of other presidents don't end up as well adjusted as Theodore and Edith's children yeah. do. So seeing Roosevelt as family man and his understanding of family drove a symposium years ago. And it is those ways of understanding what's family mean? How, how do people understand this? Just a post on social media about Alice, and someone wrote into Facebook saying, I don't get it. I don't understand how, as a father, you can leave your infant. That's a good question. It's a good question. So Stacy Cordry, who's a great friend of the Theodore yeah. Roosevelt Center, professor of history at Iowa State University, wrote in with an answer, which is, He's a single man, mm -hmm. uh, a widower, and the expectation would have been to turn your baby over to a female family member at the time. So he was doing the right thing the way they understood it at the time, but our own understanding has probably changed since then. The roles of fathers have changed since then. So that way of seeing Roosevelt and his experience is a way of understanding what's happening during his time, a way of understanding America, a way of understanding family patterns and political patterns and international relations patterns, means often looking away from Roosevelt to draw the comparisons. So that's what we're up to. That's what we're trying to do, is, is use the man to, to complicate rather than simplify, right? Yeah. Uh, well, um, yeah, and bully for you guys for, for yeah. doing that. I mean, that's a valuable thing that you're doing, and you're bringing in some high-level scholars on on those particular aspects, too, when you hold the symposiums. And so those are a must-attend for somebody who's serious yeah, about, about drilling into particular aspects of Roosevelt and his life and times. We invite people to come to Dickinson. Of course, we don't charge for the sessions. We're going to charge you for your meals. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. <laughs> the tickets cover the cost of the meals. So that's all we're looking for. Information ought to be free. <laughs> Yeah. It's the it's the central mission that we have, right? It's it's the sharing information. So we do invite people to come. We also stream those online. So if you'd like to see them online, we we do stream generally through YouTube. YouTube's easy because we have a YouTube channel, <laughs> so we can set that one up pretty quickly. Oh, and I highly recommend it's, it's good that. service. <laughs> well, as part of your other outreach mission you you mentioned that you do have a person there doing outreach with dr william hansard uh we, we see his facebook postings all the time and i know he's he's got his hands in a lot of other endeavors like social media but also that presidential primary sources project could you tell what what that's about so this is one of those amazing things put together by the presidential primary sources project uh which it reaches out to 
presidential sites and partners and asks them to put on presentations for classrooms. So William typically does about four of these a year. So it's two presentations, but he does each of them a couple of times. And he just got done with one of them. And I think they were in somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 classrooms around the country. Wow. Wow, that's great. Uh, and so it will link around a topic. So it's not just Theodore Roosevelt, but it might be Theodore Roosevelt and Andrew Jackson and talking about the nature of the presidency. And this is just one of those things where uh, more teachers should know about it. More, more folks should be aware that this is out there. Uh, the, the work that he does on those things is amazing, as you might imagine. Uh, mm-hmm. If you've read his blogs, if you've read his social media posts, you know that he knows how to tell a story. And he can, tell, he can tell them <laughs> he to does. fourth graders as well as he can tell them to anybody. <laughs> and so the, it is the way that, that we can bring the work that we do, we can bring Theodore Roosevelt to a new generation of folks. And uh, in the COVID years, it got particularly big, right? An awful lot of online yeah. learning. But the the outreach is continuing to grow through that uh the other thing that that does is puts us in connection with other presidential sites that are not theodore roosevelt you know we 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 kind of know our universe but (laughs) he will be traveling this spring to the truman library to Mm -hmm. do a piece about roosevelt uh designed for school teachers and that's a thing that the truman library has done is is invite in folks from various places to help expand well, to help give flesh to curriculum, right? To, to yeah. help mm-hmm. make those textbook pieces actually come to life. Um, and that came through the Presidential Primary Sources Project. It came through somebody that he met through that. So that linkage to the others, uh, to the other presidential sites, pulls us out into an even broader world, puts us in touch with more teachers, puts us in touch, therefore, with more classrooms and more folks. It's, it's a, a pretty astonishing thing. Wow. Yeah. Well, Larry and I both have a teaching background Great. and we know we know how it works with teachers. You're you're constantly <laughs> looking to bring more interesting relevant content into your classroom and and perfectly willing to borrow good ideas oh, yeah. uh, that other people have, right. Right. have have done. So, yeah, good. What's the relationship with with the Theodore Roosevelt Center and Dr. Michael Cullinane, the chair of TR studies at Dickinson State? So, Dr. Cullinane, Mike, is, is <clears throat> the font of all wisdom for things TR. Let's be clear. He's, <laughs> he's written two or three books now. He's got, he's got more coming. He's done dozens of articles. He speaks regularly about Theodore Roosevelt. He is the public historian for the Theodore Roosevelt Association, as well as being the, the Lum and Walton Chair in Theodore Roosevelt Studies at Dickinson State. Yeah. He does interpretive work for the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library that will come up in Medora. He is that go-to guy. His office is around the corner from mine. So (laughs) he is right there. We moved the historians into the Theodore Roosevelt Center when we moved. Um, Dr. Jeff Wells, who's a Gilded Age historian, is down the hall from me. So we are building this little nest of historians and archivists with specialization and so michael and i are hip deep we borrow heavily from his rolodex of people he knows in order to invite invite speakers of that caliber to symposium 
I think yeah. he did his first symposium in 2012. I think that's right. Don't hold me to that, but right around then. And he's been a friend of the TRC ever since. He is one of the contacts we have. I'm the other one with the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library. So we'll talk here in a moment about the Edmund Morris collection that we're, we're uh, caring yes. for on their behalf. He knows the people there. He's helping write interpretive content for their exhibits, design the rooms that will appear in July of 2026. So he is connected into that universe in ways that are incredibly useful. He's also a really good guy. He's, he's, he's really easy to work with. He's one of those colleagues who you want, who is humble about what he does, but is incredibly gifted at what he does. So couldn't ask for a better person to work with. Everybody I work with there, this is, as I suspect you both have figured out, not my first management gig. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But it's the first time where I've ever taken over where everybody likes each other and everybody works well together. That's a good sign. No, I barely know what to do. Yeah, so when you ask what the director does... I wonder what I'm supposed to be doing every now and then because it's 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 easy in really lovely ways. Everybody works Good. all together, and and he helped make that happen. So that's great to hear. Yeah. yeah, our listeners probably are aware that you know this North Dakota field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. This presidential library for TR that's being constructed out in Medora. Is there a relationship, partnership then with the Theodore Roosevelt Center and the presidential library that's to be uh, constructed? So they recently received the papers of Edmund Morris, the biographer of Theodore Roosevelt and and Thomas Edison and Beethoven and and Ronald Reagan famously, although the Reagan library has the Reagan (laughs) collection, right? They they have those papers that are related. Uh, We have both him and his wife, Edith, or I'm, yeah, Sylvia. I'm sorry, yeah. I mean, she wrote the book about Edith, Sylvia Jukes Morrison. <laughs> we have their papers that they put together, so we have them in the sense that they belong to the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library. We are housing them and cataloging them on their behalf, and wow. we'll be participating in the digitization of those things that they think are most important to, to bring forward. Uh, that just arrived. I was just in, in North Dakota for the arrival of those papers. We had people in from around the country to get their pictures taken with papers, let's be clear. Oh, <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is a big deal. This is, this is. So uh, Michael Cullinane flew Definitely. in from Ireland to, to be in on the pictures and, wow. and to talk about the importance of these papers. Um, we're very much at the beginning stages. And I will tell you that Edmund Morris was a very consistent and reliable record keeper. He made sense of what he had. Always file things in the right places, but but there's order to it. (laughs) And one of the things that I've learned from archivists is that if you get something like this, the goal is as much as possible, preserve the organizational system of the author. Because it's a way into his brain, right? You can see how he sees things. But he keeps his correspondence, right? He keeps all of the letters about the books. There is a lovely letter that he wrote to Sandra Day O'Connor, Associate Mm -hmm. Justice of the Supreme Court, who was not a big fan of one of his books. And they had met. And so he wrote back and explained to her why she should be. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> That's a very TR thing to do. That it is. It is, is yes. Yeah. So, perfect. So there's some lovely overlap. So that relationship with the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library is working in a variety of ways. This is the Morris Papers is just the, the most obvious of them, but we do collaborate with them. They are also not a collecting institution, but as with us, people will often offer them things. And what do you do at that moment? You say yes to the things that make sense in your collection is what you do. Mm-hmm. And so um, we hope to be able to maintain that. I actually have archivists work for me. I have people who are ready to do this sort of work and who have done it for hundreds of thousands of documents in significant amounts of time, right? Um, yeah. So they are much more of a public history institution rather than a research institution. We're a research institution, right? We're... we're um, bringing the documents and the, the items to you wherever you are. Yeah. They are about presenting Roosevelt and the lessons that we can learn from him in a format that will draw people in. Our audience is, is often researchers, various ages, but, but most often researchers, and are nicely called Ted Heads. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, the folks yes, sir. Who are very interested, as I suspect. Yeah. Uh, the two of you are, and and are not surprised by the words at all. <laughs> but that mission, theirs and ours, actually dovetails really nicely. So we are working on the partnership as we are both growing. So we'll, we'll see how this all unfolds over time, right? The, but but it is a, a a very important partnership to us. Wonderful. Yeah, we uh, we recently had author Markley Gardner. Uh, who wrote Rough Riders, and uh, you know, you talk about what a, a wealth of information this will be. The Morris Papers for future historians oh. on TR, as yeah. thorough as Morris was, he didn't include everything, surely. And we think about Mark Lee Gardner talked about going in and mining all of the research of Hagedorn uh, that he did on the Rough Riders, and and just gain this wealth of information that Hagedorn never included. So I suspect that's the advantage future generations will have in looking at the Morris papers, too. That's wonderful. That's, yeah, certainly. Edmund Morris seemed to be a person who really thought his way through what he was going to do. So one of my favorite things is he would often diagram what what the book would look like or the chapter would look like. And he did that in a variety of ways. But one of my favorite images is, I think it's Theodore Rex, I think, but I could be wrong. It's drawn like... A ivy vine and it's weaving in and out <laughs> it's just this how he's imagining the parts fit together wow uh, yeah and so it's fascinating to see and, and of course there are things that that don't make it into a book right there yeah yeah so there will be things there's some processing time here his nephew ended up with the collection to determine what to do with it and so Parts of it are really well organized, and parts of it are just what happens when you get your uncle's collection, right? He did a really good job with it, and then there are parts where I'm not sure if it was Edmund himself who may have had a junk drawer like I have in my kitchen. I hope he did. Mm -hmm. I hope he did, because that would make me feel better about (laughs) me as a writer. (laughs) So, But but because of the way that that it comes in, it'll be a while before folks really have much access to that. The, the process yeah. of actually creating a finding egg and a catalog for that. It's enormous. It's a, it was 151 bankers' boxes full of information. 
Wow. Not all about Theodore Roosevelt. Oh. It's, it's the other books that he wrote. It's uh, Sylvia's materials on Edith and, and boxes and boxes on, mm. on Claire Booth Luce, and some of which we'll, we'll digitize and catalog, and others will do a step down from that, right? We'll, we'll do a finding aid so we can tell people it's that big box over there that says telegrams. <laughs> it's, 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 it's that one. <laughs> yeah. So you've talked about working with different organizations. What is the future of the Theodore Roosevelt Center? So the future of the Theodore Roosevelt Center is very much that we want to stay with our mission. We want to deliver on what we've been promising for a long time. And what we hope to be is the place where you can go to start any project about Theodore Roosevelt, his friends, his family, his time. And if not finish the project there, at least get the launch point from there. So that envisions a significant growth in how we do what we do. So we'll move through the rest of the documents of the presidency and the post-presidency. We'll roll backwards. By then, AI might be able to read a little more handwriting to, mm. the, to the pre-presidential years. But the papers of Henry Cabot Lodge, they had mm. a, a very long and fruitful relationship. The relationship yes. with the Sultan Stalls. Um, mm-hmm. These are papers that are out there. There's no direct linkage between these things. But there could be. Right? Yep. There could be. And so we could see not just the, the man himself and, and what he wrote, but we could see how he fits into these various places within the universe of his time. Um, that idea about where we can go uh, makes this probably an exceptionally ambitious project. But that's okay. I like high hurdles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what we're headed to now, the short run. We are going to plow ahead. As I mentioned, we're in the midst of of putting out a contract for or a call for a new website. Uh, Ours was designed originally a while ago, and it's it's useful if you're a researcher. But we could update a bit, right? And so in the short run, new website, a new symposium in the fall, uh, and catalog, catalog away until we move along. We'll, We'll revive our volunteer program. Mm. try and give some opportunities, some people who are remote to, to help us push the project along. It's a strange thing for me to say, but if you can read cursive, <laughs> I may want to yeah. talk to you. You know, <laughs> If we're, if we're going to preserve this stuff, we need folks who have those skills. And um, I won't take any position on whether we need the, that skill anymore, but I need people who can read it um, at all times. And that's the, both the short and the longer term vision. Is, is push ahead with what we're doing and continue to grow, continue to think about how can we make this an even more useful source yeah. for research. Well, you guys are doing the good work. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, to, to use Roosevelt's words, what do you say, far and away the, the best prize that this life has to offer is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. Yeah. And that is work worth doing. It yeah. is. It is. I'm, Amen. I'm, I couldn't be more pleased with, with the work itself and with the people I get to work with yeah. and the folks I get to meet on the way. Yeah. This, is, this has been great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I agree, Chris. This has been a terrific conversation. We really yeah. appreciate you making the time to join us, and thanks so much for being a part of the Talk About Teddy podcast. Well, thank yeah, you thank for you. inviting me, and, and the 
the joy of something like this is, is reaching out to people who care about Theodore Roosevelt and care about his time. And that is work that, that drives us, that motivates us. It is important that we remember, says the historian in me. <laughs> yeah. It's important that we preserve uh, everything we can. Uh, yeah. And so I appreciate the opportunity. Happy to come back whenever you'll have me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Chris. <laughs> <Bully>. <laughs> thank you. Well, we hope you enjoyed our wonderful conversation today with the director of the Theodore Roosevelt Center, Dr. Chris O'Brien. You can access their amazing and ever-expanding digital library and check out their additional resources, such as the links to free open-source digital copies of TR's writings, and find information about past year's Theodore Roosevelt Symposia at their website, theodoreroosevelt.org. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. You can find this podcast on our website, talkaboutteddy.com where you can see show notes and transcripts, links to resources, and additional TR content. And do please tell us what you think. And if you've enjoyed our content, please consider subscribing and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. And tell your friends and family about us, because it really does make a tremendous difference, and it helps others find this show. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Talk About Teddy. And until then, as our friend TR would say, do what you can with what you have, where you are.